Welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of EHS Daily Advisor. This week, I talked to Scott DeBow, Principal of Health, Safety, and Environment for Aveda, about navigating worker management. This episode is sponsored by Aveda. And now, on to the interview. I'm joined today by Scott DeBow, Principal of Health, Safety, and Environment for Aveda. Welcome to the show, Scott. Jay, thank you so much. Great to be here. And you've been on before, but uh, a few times before, but just for uh, folks who may not be familiar with you, uh, could you tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do with Aveda? Sure. Yeah. So uh, um, tell you what, I've been in I've been in the safety field for about 20 years now. Um, uh, like like most people, you start at a, a technical level or a technician level and work your way up to more of a kind of a practitioner and um, just fell in love with the industry or fell in love with the job. Um, it's a very hard, it's a very hard job at times. Um, and uh, but always learning about life and people and the way we uh, uh, j- just the way we communicate. And uh, when it comes to safety, to me, that's kind of one of the things I love about it. It comes down to people and how we care for them and communicate. So, um, you know, over this over the 20 years or so, I've I've worked at the you know, the the technical level, practitioner level, uh, manager to the VP level, um, or today at Aveda, I serve as the principal advisor for health, safety, and environmental for North America, Latin America, and, and uh, Asia Pacific. Um, and my job, my job today is really to help advise both our internal leaders about our current best practices. What are we seeing in terms of what? What's the current best thinking and practices we're seeing, you know, around the world when it comes to safety? And we're we're finding and learning so many uh, exciting things, right? The new view of safety, right? Um, uh, we we just touch on HOP or human and organizational performance, for example, is like the great. It's the great uh, table setting to me because you have so many stakeholders around the dinner table or the the work table, if you will, and um, I haven't found a better uh, list of fundamentals or uh, philosophical approach to to drive better discussions about how we're improving safety than better understanding and and practicing and teaching HOP. Um, so that's my job out of that is to help our organization understand safety and we're a software as a solution company. So, you know, we we work in the space where we have extended supply chains. We have employers that depend on many, many, many other employers uh, to help them accomplish their mission, their goals, their work. And so think of it as your your contracted community, maybe your temporary agency, your those you depend on to accomplish uh, labor, you know, to meet your goals. And and our software helps, you know, provide the the insight into who is in our work system. Um, do they have the basic compliance insurance contractual requirements to begin work? And and uh, uh, another big area of, of my focus is to, well, once we start work together, how do we stay connected together? Because um, risk fluctuates day in and day out. Um, and, uh, you know, the people doing the work have the best intel and the best understanding of risk and have good things to tell us. So, so um so been with a vet about 18 months. The other part of my job is I get to do great things like this, um, meet new friends and people around the world that uh, we're all focused on. What are we doing with this this uh, safety thing? And especially when it comes to uh, workforce management or labor strategy. And and uh, are, are we thinking and doing safety the same way we did 20 years ago? Well, 
the labor market's different. Our workforce strategies are different than they were 20 years ago. So how are we really doing? So that's what I do, um, you know, and love it. Absolutely love it. Well, that's a good thing. Um, well, today we're going to talk about uh, navigating worker management. So uh, I want to start off with uh, asking you, what are you seeing in terms of worker trends? Uh, sure. So, so with the work, with the trends of the workforce, right? And we've seen this for quite some time. If we, um, maybe I could just start with a visual. So David Wheel wrote a, a pretty amazing book called The Fissured Workplace. Um, he's an economist, and so you know, all of my reading has has been by by safety people, <laughs> safety people or business people. This is the first book I think that. Um, I've read by an economist who describes the history of of uh, of work, you know, historically was kind of like a fortress. You know, um, the approach to uh, managing your workforce was those inside the the walls or the boundaries of your organization. You manage your workforce. Your workers were inside the walls, so to speak. You could see them. You could talk to them easier. You could you could manage change easier. Um, you know, it wasn't so complex, right? You had a much shorter chain of communications. Um, uh, but today, you know, he compares our our workforce of today is more like a solar system, right? So, you, you know, you have you have a chain of planets, or you have a chain of employers. Um, with each, you know, you, your host employer, your your planet, your central planet. Uh, being orbited by the contractors, the temporary labor providers that are doing, you know, providing goods and services, supporting your business that are kind of orbiting your business. And each of them may have other subcontractors or businesses orbiting them. Um, but, you know, the the point he makes is, hey, the the boundaries have kind of eroded in terms of how we used to think and guard and and manage our workforce. And so when we think of worker trends, uh, you know, I think this connects with a lot of the things we we hear about. If you're if you're in the business at all, you've heard of the gig economy. Mm-hmm. Um, you've heard of you know the rise of the gig economy and what technology is doing, and um, you know how much we depend on Uber today versus uh, how much we did ten ten years ago. And and it's changed the way we think, the way we we travel, um, and certainly the way that we hire. So when we think about uh, worker trends. Um, it's I think the biggest thing to know is that we we see an increasing dependency by by companies um, to depend on contracted labor arrangements. Right. We we see. Uh, so there was a recent study, uh, I think it was 2019, that, you know, the ratio of contractors to your traditionally employed workers had increased by 63 percent since 2019. Right. Just in the past uh, three or four years. Right. It's it's increased significantly. So this is in the U.S. Um, we see the same trend in Europe. We see the same trend in other parts of the world, um, not to the same extent of uh, uh, in the U.S., but, you know, Europe contract positions surged uh, over 20 percent. Right. Uh, since 2019. So we see, you know, what companies are doing when it comes to workforce strategy is, right, we have our core employees and we have our core business and these are the things we do. Um, But rather than depending on um, uh, contractors or contingent labor just on the ancillary portions of our business, um, 
we see we see the the workforce trends showing that companies bring more contracted labor even closer into their core right um doing the things that you know traditionally they would have guarded now they're actually increasing the the number of number of contracted employees doing uh doing things that you know traditionally they wouldn't have done before so we see this model being used bigger and so one of the questions we have to ask is you know it, it appears as if we've gotten better at making this type of thing happen faster so if the business model is to outsource, if the business model is to rely on more contracted labor, more contingent labor, and we've gotten better at you know, standing up the requirements to do the work, to get them trained or oriented to the job site and get them on the job site, how have we, how have we been doing at managing the risk once they're on the job site? And I think that's the big question in safety today. Um, so, yeah, sort of following up on that, how does the increased use of contract workers play into risk? So I, what's important to understand is when it comes to risk in in a joint employer environment. Is that, you know, we we initially rightly place emphasis on the the beginning of the relationship, right? The contract, the insurance, due diligence, you know, all these things at the beginning of the relationship. But we we often underestimate how easily risk is multiplied throughout the rest of the operations uh, where we we literally have multiple management systems working alongside each other right many many planets in orbit so to speak uh, extended away from uh, the host employer um, but they're not necessarily well connected from the standpoint of of identifying risk monitoring improving uh, and the big thing is communication so um uh, you know, let me let me back up just a minute. When we think about the increased use of contract workers into our work systems, first of all, you know, these are specialists. How much we really depend on them to do work for us in today's market and reasons are, hey, they're, you know, uh, they're specialists, they're professional, they're flexibility. We can, um, you know, the the pace of business, right? The being agile as well as being able to accomplish work. There, there's a, you know. Um, there's value in being able to accomplish you know, projects very, very quickly when they're outside of your skill set. And so, you know, that that's such an important thing to recognize and and uh, respect when it comes to our contractor community. Um, and so when I talk about these risk multipliers as it relates to the use of contractors or contingent labor, it, it's not because uh, my point is not that that these people that are contractors or these people that are temporary workers aren't, you know, they're less safe because uh, they're a temporary worker. It's like it's the system. Um, uh, it's a system that they're working in. Um, and so when we talk about risk multipliers, some of the things that we often see is, um, you know, we, we can see workers that. Um, that are often perhaps uh more more willing to accept higher levels of risk than they normally would right and so they're in a system where uh work is being done very quickly when change happens how well are they connected to uh you know is this something that i should stop work over is this somebody i can call and ask a question or the the expectation is to hurry up and get this done within the within the scope and, and boundaries of the contract, like the boss 
like the boss wanted to. So what might I be willing to do or, or what risk might I be willing to assume to accomplish the work? Um, so risk tolerance goes up. Um, there, there's been some interesting studies in the space that talk about perception or perceived risk of a contingent worker alongside a traditionally employed worker doing the same tasks. And, and generally, it's like the, there's a lower perception of, of risk, right? How can I how can I get hurt doing this job? And sometimes that has to do with training. It has to do with less familiarity with a, a job site they haven't been on for very long. Um, but there's a lower perception, a lower understanding of how can I get hurt doing this. And then the final risk multiplier has to do with with uh, I touched on it earlier, but the communication piece, the upward communication. There has to be a very dedicated and intentional process to allow a contracted worker or a temporary worker. We should expect that things might change from the time we sign an agreement to the time they get on the job to do it. And we need to make sure they are never without a means to raise their hand and say, you know, this is very, you know, this is very, very different than what we expected, or there is a, an electrical outage. Um, we now need to get on the roof. We need to understand what roof access is like and, you know, where are your skylights? You know, are they covered? Right. So so uh, it's very important to stay connected with the, you know, these two employers or multiple employers to stay connected. And and so without the dedicated communication channels we we see the risks multiplied and and uh, this is you this is unique and we, things we should understand better when we think about hey we're we're using contract workers at an increasing rate how do we improve our communications and understanding of risk within this shared workforce right within this joint employer environment um and and you know are there any sort of uh other sort of uh I guess from a systems point of view, you know, are there things that are in common, um, you know, that when you look at this, you know, like like resources and boundaries and things like that, like, you know, how, how does that sort of impact the uh, employer uh, contract worker relationship? Sure, that's that's a great question, Jay. So what I what I like about what you said, resources and boundaries, when we when we think about any system in play, any you know, accounting systems or um you know, safety systems you know every system has has resources so resources being the things like our budget for staffing levels our budget to provide training uh for the people that we hire um our budget for safety controls or or technology communications uh, you know verifying competent these are our resources um and alongside the boundaries if you picture a scale resources on one side boundaries on the other side boundaries that's our role. Those are our responsibilities. And it could be you know, as simple as our, our job description, our standard work um, that, that's outlined and the scope of work. Like the, what's the sandbox we're playing in? How far can we go? This is the boundary. Um, the challenge is that, again, picture the scale. We have resources on one side. Resources often fluctuate in a shared work environment in this this solar system of work being being completed. And so, so we may have um, the due diligence satisfied with our contracted communities, um, you know, uh, on one hand, but by the time they show up for work, uh, maybe they have fewer employees, maybe they've been through, um, 
you know, uh, things that have challenged and taxed their resources. So they're operating with fewer resources than what we agreed on to do the job safely. And what do people do when they lack resources? They get creative, right? We exceed the boundaries we agreed on. And what we know about when we when we diminish resources and we exceed our boundaries in a work system, failure happens very quickly or the likelihood for failure goes up. And so we want to consider as like, well, initially we do a great job at establishing the resources to do this job and and the boundaries. And uh, but what we want to understand is how do we stay connected to do we still have the right resources and are we operating within the boundaries and and how do we know that? That's the question. So I I think of it as like a life cycle. How do we stay connected with the resources we need to do good, safe work and the boundaries we need to operate in? Um, you know, so no one no one gets hurt today. Um, and and I'd add on to that, Jay, is like, look, we should we should anticipate that that the experts doing the work, the contractors, the the workers doing the work. Have we set them up well when they have a, a resource change? Right. To recognize that or or to ask, hey, we need a different tool or we need to get a taller ladder uh, or we need to get rid of these ladders and get scissorless, what, whatever it might be. Have we designed a system? Have we set the system up to anticipate that resources may not be sufficient from what we originally thought? And that's really important because if we don't address that, we know boundaries are likely to be exceeded. And so uh, therefore, we're getting back to the system design, right? So yeah, great point with the resources and boundaries. Very important in any work system, especially when we have a joint employer environment with with two or more employers, you know, working to uh, to get you know accomplished work. Uh, can you give an example of sort of you know what what can happen when those resources and boundaries are are diminished and you know there's a a significant event you know failure? What, you know what? How does that sort of play out? Yeah. Yeah, so um, one of the one of the giants to in the industry, the safety industry, giant to me was Fred Manuel, um, and you know, kind of uh, as far as I know, wrote the book or initially started writing. Uh, what are the what are precursors to serious injuries and fatalities? Right? What are the events? What are the conditions known to be in place that precede a serious injury fatality? And so. Now, uh, he described a couple of things. One of those things he described is, well, when work goes from normal to abnormal, right? So uh, when work changes, and I hinted at this earlier, it's like, we, how are we anticipating that resources might change for our contracted community when they're doing certain work? And how can they tell us what's a mechanism so they can communicate and be supported in those moments? Um so just a quick example from my own experience is, you know, you say we have a supervisor with, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a team of four, right? And, you know, they everybody shows up on time that morning, except they're short one. Now they're a team of three. Um, they still have the, the same amount of work to do. Um, this this example includes a smokestack, right? Getting a, uh, it was a, uh, a potato chip manufacturer. Right. So everybody, I love chips. Right. So, uh, you know, but but listen, when you when you process the chips and there's oils and there's there's stacks and uh, you have, you know, you might have the EPA. Right. There, there's inspections. There's there's agencies that come and inspect your facility and and they look at things like your smokestack. So in preparation for scrubbing the smokestacks and the roof, 
Um, you know, this this team was short one and then somebody else checked out. Now they're short two. So they still have the work to do. And this supervisor, one, I think we can make a case for, uh, you know, supervisors are often in the literally in the driver's seat to recognize risk as it's being multiplied. And unless we do a good job at training our supervisors to recognize that and to have that mechanism to reach out, hey, uh, we're short two people. This is a team of five that's required to get up and safely do this on top of the roof. Um, well, those methods weren't in place that day. And so what happened is a supervisor uh, who, who typically had their own team of traditionally uh, employed workers started asking uh, some of the temp workers on the floor, right? Hey, um, you've been with us a while. We know your name, seeing you around. You want to help us out today? We're going to get up on the roof and do some things, need some brave souls to kind of, you know, help us get some things done. And and so there's a supervisor on one hand trying to solve problems. But on the other hand, we're asking uh, uh, workers who have no no training or, you know, competencies around going up on a roof or the necessary required training for fall protection. Um, but back to our risk multipliers discussion, right? Their perceived risk is lower, right? Their, their risk tolerance is higher. So they're less likely to say no. They're, they're more likely to say yes in this situation. A supervisor comes by and says, hey, I need help. Um, who am I to say no? If I say no, what will happen? And so, you know, long story short, um, insufficient fall arrest protection, fall fall protection systems in place, um, and just imagine getting up on a, you know, a slightly angled metal roof that when you spray the smokestacks with smoke with soap and water, the kind of kind of cascades down this roof, and and this this metal roof now becomes a slippery metal roof. Um, that is, by the way, the soap is covering the placement of the uh the skylights which were flush with the roof and uh lo and behold um employee that had low low perception of risk and where the hazards were and and what they should be doing fell through the skylight so we had work go from normal to abnormal from a resources standpoint we had combination of of um you know a very very real problem and common problem with supervisors as a change in resources how do i solve this problem and their approach, you know, we we could say was unacceptable, right, uh, from a safety standpoint. But, you know, that supervisor also wasn't trained or supported to know what to do in those situations. And we put workers up on the roof that were unaware of the risks. Um, worker fell through the skylight. It's about 50 feet off the floor. Um, fortunately, that day they landed on a cross member of like a, a big water pipe. So that so they had scratches and bruises. Um, but, um, you know, a near fatal incident, everything that, you know, the only thing that saved us that day, saved that person that day was just the position of the skylight. Had it been another skylight, they could have fallen through. Um, and and by the way, even if they had fall protection on that day, the lanyard was so long, uh, they still would hit the ground. So So we had a number of problems. But when we think about Look, why do we want to consider staying in touch with having a system that that puts us and keeps us in touch with the resources and boundaries for good work to connect 
our supervisors and, and the people involved with work um, with with what's required to do work safely and when things change, how do we make a good decision? Um, you know, this is an example of why, a very real example of, of why we want to uh, be thinking about um, how we how we get better at managing a safe workforce when we have a shared workforce. Um, what are the specific impacts of contract workers? So, so you mean impacts in terms of, uh, we could say injury experience, loss yeah. experience. Um, so yeah, this is an area that I think we have, let's, so there's some data I can share with us, but what I'd first share is I think we need, we need cleaner and better data. So, um, you know, first of all, in, in the U.S., if we look at OSHA injury data, um, you know, site by site, we might be able to look at a a location's OSHA 300 log, right? A site's OSHA 300 log, um, and unless the employer m makes a specification of like, hey, this is a temp worker, this is a temp worker, uh, we we really don't know. And and then. And and then at that same employer that had contractors working there, and if they were injured or or at that site, um, that's recorded on a separate log. And so it's hard for us to like collect the aggregate in I think a better way to really get our arms around the the extent of the problem. Now, having said that, um, you know there there is evidence, and there there are reports, you know from uh, you know from uh, insurers from um, uh, from studies. I think one that comes to mind is Washington State that did uh, uh, research on just you know the fatality experience or the injury experience for contingent labor. Um, you know, is nearly twice the rate of you know, lost time claims. You know, per per hundred full-time equivalent workers, right? So they're they're injured more often. And so once again, that we don't want to assume that these are these are less capable human beings or just because they're a contractor or a temp worker, they're gonna be injured more. But but they're they're newer to the work environment. The uh, the communication methods perhaps are not um, uh, not as specific as they should be. Um, but when we yeah you know, when we look at you know whether it's, it's insurance premium standpoint or if we look at um, other concerns like uh, product quality, uh, that that's something that that employers are I know are thinking about. With the rise of contingent labor, um, I heard there's there's 900 million uh, product units that were recalled, you know, just in the first quarter of 2022, um, and you know, the U.S. experienced the highest number of units recalled in in a single quarter in the past 10 years, just to put that in perspective, look, there's a, a billion product units recalled in all of 2021. So so what is going on? We don't know, but we know that um, this isn't perhaps necessarily just the fault of contracted or contingent workers, but, but we know uh, employers are thinking about what's the impact of of people doing work in our system, we have more to think about than just health and safety. We think about we think about our product quality, reputation. We think about social impact. We think about um, environmental impact, and these are all broadening uh, challenges and discussions that I think are rightly part of what we think about when we think of a current modern work system. Um, 
What can you tell me about the latest expectations, regulations, and standards regarding contract workers? Sure. So, uh, to me, I describe this, look, I'm hearing the same thing from many different groups, right? So, when we think of uh, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, for example, has been doing work with, uh, alongside the American Staffing Association, has been doing work alongside OSHA around the specific topic of, um, you know, of injury prevention uh, in, in a contracted labor community. So. Uh, NIOSH has addressed this by by creating a white paper, or actually, it's a it's a host employer document. They call it, um, you know, new best practices to protect temporary workers on the job. And and you know what they're trying to attempt is a, a knowledge deficit by employers that are using contingent labor um, to be able to have a better, uh, really, a, what we developed is a systems based approach to to help fill that knowledge gap and a guide you know, checklists um, to help them ask the questions they need to ask to stay connected with, hey, more than just the due diligence, but the resources and, and boundaries to manage uh, in this. And so that that also became recognized by the American National Standards Institute. So it was recently published by ANSI and is known as the Z590.9. Um, um, and it is a technical report for uh, for guidance on on managing safety in a in a contingent labor environment. So, uh, but we see, um, uh, you know, when we think about expectations and regulations from from like OSHA, uh, OSHA is very very aware and has made efforts uh, to address you know multi employer work sites, um, and they're asking questions about you know recognizing you know the traditional metric for OSHA is total recordable incident rate, DART rate. But OSHA has been making inquiries into, uh, you know, leading indicators, right? So the um, there was a uh, a period of time, I think it extended through July, where OSHA was asking employers for feedback, for comments on, hey, how do you how do you manage your workforce, and what are leading indicator activities you use to manage workforce, and and the the contract community was a part of that, right? Leading indicators and managing contractor safety was a big was a big part of that discussion. Um, we even see um, the uh, the VPP program being um, emphasized, and we see groups, industry groups like the American Society for Safety Professionals, um, you know, signing memorandums of understanding and, and agreements to uh, to focus and leverage on the value of uh, VPP programs and and other, which are really systems based approaches, systems management thinking. To address safety in the workforce, um, but you know, last thing I'd add is like when we look at what the regulators are doing, and so we see regulations. Is there a is there a new regulation that has come out to say here's here's how you must do things? We don't necessarily see that, but we do see the consensus community, right? So uh, so the American National Standards Institute, um, you know, uh, Z10. Uh, Z10 standard for safety management systems. Um, we see ISO 45001, the global standard for safety management systems. 
uh, you know, both expanding their definition of worker to specifically include workers in the workforce. And, and today, who that means is your traditionally employed workers, as well as your uh, your contracted, your temporary labor, um, and uh, with a specific emphasis on inclusion into the workforce, right? Including them into the workforce. And, and so do the, you know, regulators are often slower to address things or be able to move quickly, but we see the regulators depend on the consensus standards often and maybe even incorporate, often incorporate by reference, um, known best practices that are agreed upon within the consensus community. So that's important to understand. I'd, I'd say look at your ANZ-Z10, look at your uh, ISO 45001, uh, look at the uh, uh, the GRI 403, right? Um, we're thinking about safety metrics being uh, um, compared and, and um, uh, valued alongside uh, ESG reporting, right? There's the components in there that are that are including, um, you know, what's going on in safety management as it includes the entire workforce. So we see movement not just from the regulatory standpoint but um but around and consistently uh you know those that you know those that are traditionally i think um kind of setting the the standard for what latest best practices are um such as in the consensus community the ones that are speaking speaking the loudest mm-hmm. um the data overwhelmingly confirms that contract workers represent a substantially higher risk of injury or death than permanent employees. Why uh, Why is that? Sure. So well, I think I think we can point to a couple of things. We look at the we look at the the risk multipliers. We look at the the number of um, the number of contract workers that are part of uh, small um small organizations that maybe do not have the uh do not have the the safety infrastructure in place um think of roofing for example right think of think of the number of falls fatal falls we've had you know, among the leading um causes of fatality it's and it's been there for quite some time um but i, I think we need to look a little bit deeper into our business systems so what I mean by that is, you know, our current system of, of uh, setting up work to happen in, in these environments is like we, uh, we, have, we have work we want done. Maybe it's window washing. Maybe it's replacing our windows. Maybe it's building a new building. And we, we go through a process of procuring labor. We go through a process of procuring companies that, are, that can help us do these, these things. And, and we spend a lot of time focusing on you know, who meets the criteria to do that and price especially in the US price is a pressure point and so how quickly can we get it done and how cheaply can we do it is is a big factor um and so those that are uh you know the employers that are setting the work up and that are that are asking for the contractors to come in and do the work um I don't know how aware or how in tune they are with the highly competitive nature in in the contingent labor and, and those that are being contracted in to do the work. 
And so it is, you know, I'd say often pennies on the dollar and and trying to get market share and trying to get uh, trying to get business, com, you know, business completed. What would they what would they be willing to accept for a lower cost? And what does that do in terms of their capacity to be able to accomplish the work? That's a real challenge. Um, and so I think the problem, the opportunity rather, starts at the beginning of the relationship. And how well are we doing at the procurement aspect of things to make sure we're asking questions to say, given this type of work, this type of risk, um, we know this type of job takes this many, you know, this many people. How are we assuring that this is being done? Um, you know, we're 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 looking at much more than just a a great written program here. We're looking we're looking at um, a contractor's ability to do the work uh, uh, safely and to manage that. And by the way, we're counting on building in methods to to stay in touch with them and to communicate throughout the life cycle of the project. And you know, so I'd say, look and answer your question. That's missing, right? We have a system that that creates a, a huge impulse to say yes at a lower cost, often to the detriment of doing work safely or doing work within a, you know, the the resource of of safe time. Um, and so, you know, from the beginning, we often increase our risk. So, you know, it's it's a tough system to work in. And you know, when we think of the risk multipliers at the site level, um, you know, those are the things that really uh, kind of, I think, magnify the risk, right? At the worker level, look, we, we can often have workers that are, they're new to the site. Um, maybe they have limited knowledge or experience. There's, they're not connected to, to clear safety oversight. Um, there's challenges in communications. And these are things that, these are problems we can solve, but they're often not in place. So I think that's the question is how do we, how do we take a, uh, you know, an existing system, make it better, and begin to address these things we uh, we know um, increase risk in a very complex system of of uh, contractor management. Uh, what are some of the other challenges that are faced by contract worker management? Sure. Well, you know, I, I haven't mentioned subcontractors, um, but just that's you know often the uh, we think of like a, a general contractor that, that manages their their group, um, but then you know things change or there there's an extended network of you know into subcontractors or subs of subs, and then you can just continue to fracture the communications down the chain. But which, which can be managed if you're aware of it and you're connected to it. So so that's that's an additional challenge just to be aware of but some of the work sites they're you know they're they're everywhere all over the world often uh you know offshore they're uh they're remote um think of the you know challenges of of hiring the workforce and making sure people are uh trained um you know when we think about resources and boundaries what about about uh languages right some site you know, how do we communicate serious risk to people that you know when you when you speak to them the, the language barrier their the, their answer is often going to be yes um but how do we how do we move beyond that and and in a traditional work environment we often have the time the resource of time to address that the challenge is that some of these sites that are remote or maybe they're delayed because of snow melt or because of uh you know 
environmental conditions, whatever it might be, you know, the tendency is just to maybe let things slide. So um, there, yeah, the, the challenges faced by the contract worker and the management around those is, um, is extensive. Um, but I think part of it is, is look, bringing these things to the surface and saying, how do we, how do we really begin to make these things better? Um, and, and, you know, you, you mentioned sort of, you know, you've got these workers who obviously may not speak the language, um, or at least not as a first language. So what are some examples of what happens when safety training gets lost in translation? Uh, yeah, so, well, first of all, you know, depending on what the, the safety training is, it, it's, um, if you think about a work environment is you, you're in, you're within the, you're within culture. Uh, and, and so, look, if if training is lost or training's lost in translation, and maybe that that could be, let's just say it's English to English, but I just don't take you seriously. Or I've been at so many other work sites. This is how I've jumped through hoops just to get work going in the past 10, 10 sites I've been at. Um, yeah, I'll just, just like, I'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, give me, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just give let's me the jackhammer. I'll get to it. So the comprehension is lost. Well, that this is taking place in a an open environment, right? So we it's a peer it's a peer reviewed environment. So your peers alongside you that you know that maybe they they see me not taking it seriously or they see somebody else who just did not understand the language do you know take shortcuts, not clip in. Um you know not use the the right size ladder, not go get the right, you know the the taller ladder, whatever it might be. This is taking place in a a peer environment within the work culture. And so it can create a permissive work culture. I was like, oh, all right. So, hey, uh, we just went through training, but you know, we're doing the opposite of what training said. So I guess we can take shortcuts too because the boss wants us, it, it's okay with them. And that's the perception. So culturally, it can, it can kind of gut uh, the way uh, we want to think about um, health and safety. So, so it can create those things. Um, you know, that impact culture, that impact understanding, uh, you know, we, we think about when people bypass a procedure or, or known safety rule. You know, language barriers are often a challenge that create. Create frustration if workers don't understand how to follow a procedure or it's not clear to them, it, it creates frustration to the point where they're just trying to get the work done and it can create even this, this sense of moral justification for bypassing a, a known safety rule. Um, and so, you know, what we need to be careful of is look, just uh, the bias against the worker saying, well, they just don't care, right? Or they don't care enough. Retrain them or discipline them, make them care more. Well, we really need to look at traditionally employed or, or non-traditionally employed, contracted, temporary workers. How, how well are our procedures communicated verbally, formally, written, informally, we really need to be careful and look at that. And so, so it can create, it can create problems culturally, it can create problems with following a procedure. Um, you know, we are in a peer setting and in a culture environment. Um, and so look, when people just, you know, my, my experience when people, um, you know, are frustrated in a state of frustration, not following safety procedures, it, it kills collaboration. People are less likely to report up a new challenge, right? There's less trust in the process. 
And the message becomes, all right, yes, we're just doing what we have to do in order to get work started. We check the safety box and uh, we we know contracted work or not, um, that creates greater levels of risk and worse outcomes. So, so when we think of what gets lost in safety training, um, there's a lot to think about there. Definitely. Um, can you talk about some of the uh, best practices that, that it uses to support top tier worker management? Sure. So I think about this in terms of line of sight. So the you know, we're, you know we're talking about the the solar system of extended employers, uh, you know, in 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 a client's work system. And so how are they able to see all the all the clients or are all the contractors and all the subcontractors in the system? That's line of sight. Um, so the place to start is, can we see who's in our work system? What work is being done? And, you know, do we have the basic things we need in place, you know, to uh, to accomplish work? And so that's kind of the starting point, right? And, and often, you know, a safety director or maybe a chief risk officer, their, their management team responsible for the contractor safety piece. That's a hard thing to be able to see if it, if it's a manual process or uh, even a really good spreadsheet because the the challenge is that um, somebody goes on vacation or there's there's change in the system you're you know you begin to miss things and so it takes it takes a dedicated time this is the importance of technology and managing risk in today's supply chain you know, without a dedicated process to to manage the contractors in a work system and even manage, you know, the workers, assure the workers have have, uh, you know, the training certifications and licenses they need or or verify a drug and alcohol test has been completed. If, you know, if they're on a work site that's uh, that, that requires it or in an industry that requires it, um, how do you keep track of all this? Well, technology is a uh, I call it. How do we. Um, how do we manage business at the speed of risk, right? We we really depend on technology to do that, and so so that's that's where as a software solution, Avada utilizes and helps support, um, you know, our clients and their their work management systems and their worker management systems, just so they have line of sight into hey, we uh, the companies that are in our business have achieved these things that are they're you know. Uh, required to do safe work, their workforce uh, is completing that has completed this type of training. Um, maybe we need to focus, uh, you know, certain types of audits in these areas for next year. How do we? And maybe maybe we look at next quarter. How do we track worker training progress through the different courses and and verify completion? Is that different in one part of the country than it is another? Um, so it's kind of a collection of safety management system data that informs our clients on you know the important things they want to know who's in their work system what work is being completed and and are the workers uh um uh, you know, trained and capable to be able to go do that work so that's that's important on a on a site level that's important on an enterprise level on a on a global level so our globalization and localization capabilities you know just it's fantastic to allow workers and suppliers, contractors, and clients to help view, you know, in their language, in their their frame of reference within within our app, within our our uh, uh, software system to recognize 
um, look, we're uh, here's where we are aligned. Here's where we're not. And where we're not, how do we stay connected? That vital piece of communications to solve problems when they arise. Well, Scott, this has been great stuff. Thank you so much for joining me today. Appreciate it. Yeah, Jay, thank you so much. Terrific conversation. Uh, always a pleasure. All right. Thank you. That wraps up episode 181 of EHS on Tap. Thanks again to Aveta for sponsoring the episode. You can find more information about the show and listen to on-demand episodes at ehsdailyadvisor.blr.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope to join me next time. Thank you.